I think most of us, if we were honest, uh, if it wasn't Sunday morning and we wouldn't, we weren't sitting here in church, most of us would say, uh, while there are a lot of aspects of the Bible that we're familiar with, uh, that we know fairly well, that there are certain parts of the Bible we just don't hang out in very much, uh, even those who have been in church for a long, long time. And uh, maybe you're new, may, maybe you're exploring faith or religion or trying to figure out what Christianity is or who Jesus is, and, and you may come into the room and think, well, everybody here knows everything about the Bible. They probably got it memorized by now. I'm sure they all know a lot more than I do. Uh, that's probably not true. Um, most of us know certain parts of the Bible. We know the stories of Jesus. If, if I ask you, tell me one of the stories of Jesus, you could probably come up with that. If you've been in church for a while, you, you probably know some of the Old Testament characters and their stories like Abraham or Joseph or uh, David. Um, you, you probably can piece some of that together. Maybe you, maybe you know some of Paul's letters or, or some of the popular verses that Paul wrote, maybe James, something like that. But there still are parts of the Bible we just, we don't swim in very much. Like we don't spend a whole lot of time. You're, you're, you're not doing your devotion unless you're reading all the way through the Bible. There's probably parts of the Bible you're just not in a whole lot. One of the parts that we tend to ignore is what's called the minor prophets. They're all in the Old Testament, and uh, there are 12 of them. There are 12 minor prophets, and uh, they're sometimes called the 12 because we're creative like that. They're called the 12, 12 minor prophets. There's five major prophets, and the, you may know this, the difference between major and minor, <clears throat> it's not uh, an issue of importance. It's not that the major ones were the really important ones and the minor ones are sort of important. Major and minor, for the, the sake of the Bible, just designate, designate short or long. If, if they had a long message, and, and in particular one that they gave over a number of years or a number of weeks or months, then that's considered a major prophet just because this message was really long. And then if they had a really short message, they were called the minor prophets. And all of you like minor preachers, I'm sure, right? You don't want really short not short ones, but not very long. Major and minor, that, that's how they're designated <clears throat> in the Bible. They're also designated according to when they gave their message. Uh, there's, there's kind of a, a major event that happens in the Old Testament. One, one of many major events is when the nation of Israel is captured by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in and they attack and they attack and they attack. And eventually, they just wipe out uh, the Israelites, take them away to Babylon, and they live in captivity, we call it. So the major and minor prophets are, are often broken down according to whether they gave their message before the captivity started, and then there's another set of prophets that gave their message during the captivity. So uh, the ones before gave warnings, you need to turn back to God. You need to stop worshiping false idols. Judgment is going to come. Consequences are going to come if you don't change. And then the ones during captivity uh, shared with the Israelites how they were supposed to live when they were living in captivity. And then the other category would be those who gave their message after the nation began to come back to Jerusalem, to Israel, 
from captivity. We're going to study a really small minor prophet by the name of Haggai. Haggai's message came after the captivity. People had started coming back to Jerusalem, coming back to Israel, and uh, Haggai was among those, he was among one of the waves of people that came back and began to resettle in the land. And so his message comes after people have started coming back. I have a timeline here. These are just kind of round numbers just to help you conceptualize where we are in the history of the nation. Over here, 2000 BC, you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, you're familiar with those story, stories. Uh, the, the nation of Israel goes to Egypt. Eventually, they're enslaved. They have the exodus under Moses around 1500 B.C., round number uh, 1500 B.C. Here are some books that take place during that time. About 500 years later, David becomes king of Israel, the most well-known uh, king of the nation in 1000 B.C. And we are about 500 years after David. You see the captivity right there. They start coming back, and then Haggai shows up to give his message. Now, since we're 500 years after David, we're also about 500 years from when Jesus is going to come. So that's the, the historical landscape of where this story lands. Now, part of the problem when the Israelites started returning to their homeland is that when Babylon captured the Israelites, they just wrecked the country. They destroyed houses. They destroyed the, the wall that was around Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. Basically, they left the city and the nation in ruin. So when they came back, they have to start rebuilding their cities. They have to rebuild their houses, and they have to rebuild the the temple. Now, maybe you're used to having some projects like that. You're, you're, you're used to repairing things or fixing things or changing things. If you have a really large project that you know is going to take several steps or several days or uh, several weeks, you're going to have to do this first. You have to start prioritizing. What, what are the most important aspects? What do we need to do first so that then we can do the next phase so that when, then we can do the next phase? And if, if you have a large project, you have to decide where's a good place to stop. Uh, you have to decide where's that spot where you can say, all right, this is a good place to stop, right? Let's, let's stop this part and then we'll pick it up again Tomorrow. Now, um, if I could share a little dad secret with you, uh, my kids are almost all grown, so I'm okay revealing dad secrets. Da uh, just a little dad secret is we use this phrase just because we're done and we're tired, right? Th this is a good place to stop. Right? This, this, this right, it, it's not because we have some sophisticated strategy in our mind about where every part of the project should We're just done, or, or the game's about to start. And so we'll throw out the phrase, this is a good place to stop, and we'll knock off for that day. Now, here's the problem with saying, this is a good place to stop. The problem is, it's sometimes very difficult to start the project again. Once we've decided to hit pause, it can be very difficult to re-engage, because we start with this enthusiasm, 
right? We're all excited about the project. We're, we have a vision for what we're going to create, and, and maybe we're painting some of the rooms on the inside of our house, and, and you, have to do, you have to cut in, and we've got to do trim, and we've got to do this, and we're going to move from room to room. And, and when you, you just get a little tired and you stop, maybe it's painting the outside of the house. Maybe it's fall, so maybe it's all the yard work that you have to do in the fall, the leaves and the limbs and the trim, trimming the bushes. When you decide this is a good place to stop, it can be difficult to get going again. And then a week later, you look at it and you think, well, I, I need to finish that. I need to get back and, and finish. And then a month later, you say, you know, I really need to finish that last little part that I didn't finish. And then two months later, you say, you know, it really looks just fine the way it is. I, th- I think, I think it would be just fine the way it is. I- anybody have a wooden porch or a, a wooden back deck? I- yeah, yeah. The kind where if you're going to restain or repaint, it's a, it's a multi-step process. You've got to clean the wood. You've got to replace the, the rotted boards. Uh, You've got to restain or... or or reap, and you got to let it dry every time. So you got to do one step, let it dry. You got to come back. We have a very small wooden deck on the back of our house, and I despise having to deal with that deck. I absolutely despise it. Um, the last time is about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and I, I promise I did eighty percent of it. Absolutely cleaned it. Got the old boards up, put new boards down, repainted about 80%. There were some spindles, there was a rail. The other side that you really can't see from inside the house, I didn't quite get to that part. And um, eight months later, I, I just I didn't even notice it anymore. And that's the other thing about leaving part of the job unfinished, is after a while you just don't see it anymore. And sure enough, eight months later, I didn't even see all the little places that I didn't quite paint. I didn't quite, my wife saw it pretty clearly though, right? So eight, nine months later, I finished that last little bit that needed to be done. Here's the problem with big projects when you get most of it done or you get started and then you take a break is we tend to stop noticing that we stopped working before the job was really complete. After a while, we just don't notice it. We don't notice that we stopped short of what the goal was. It just sort of becomes the new normal, right? That, that's the new normal for how it looks. And we just totally miss that there's still more to do. We even have phrases like, uh, a job well begun is half done, right? A job well begun is half done. Uh, but the problem is, it's still half done. You made a great start, but you didn't finish. You didn't get all the way to the end. You know what the world needs? The world needs finishers. The, the world needs people who are commit, committed all the way to the end of what they've been called to do. Now, if you understand that concept, if you understand the concept of starting a project and stopping and never getting back to it, then you understand the context of the book of Haggai. Here's the challenge in the book of Haggai. This is why Haggai speaks up. The challenge in the book of Haggai is that the people had a finishing problem. They had a finishing problem. 
They didn't have a starting problem. They had a finishing problem. And, and, and maybe some of us have a finishing problem. Maybe in various areas of our lives, we just leave things sort of half done. Things, things that we committed to, and then we pull back. Maybe even in our spiritual lives. Maybe there was a time, maybe, maybe like with Maddie this morning, maybe there was a time you were baptized and you were excited about your faith and, 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 and you were involved in a Bible study and you, and you were committed to coming together and worshiping on a consistent basis and you were growing personally. You started that walk of faith and then something happened and you just kind of hit pause. You stopped moving forward. Haggai shows up in a culture of people who had hit pause in their spiritual life and he challenges them to start moving again. This is Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. So what we have is Haggai the prophet, and he comes to Zerubbabel, who's the governor. So he's the political leader of the nation. So as the political leader, and then he has Joshua, who's the spiritual leader. He's the priest. Haggai knows, I've got to get the leaders on board, so I'm going to challenge them first. But the message is really for everybody. The message isn't just for the leaders. It starts with the leaders, but the message is for everybody. And here's the message, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now, you, you get an indication that God's not real happy with the people of Israel because He starts off by calling them these people. These people. You read other places in the Bible, and God calls Israel my people. God would say, these are my people. Sometimes he says, they're my children. They're my sons and daughters. Not, not here. God shows up and says, you know what these people are saying? It's kind of like when you're mad at somebody in your house. Who is the person who can't take out the trash? Who are these people who live here and they leave stuff all over the den? Who's the person who spilled something on the couch and didn't clean it up? Or when your wife says, you need to talk to your children. That's that's, that's God. You need to deal with your children. And you're pretty sure that both of you are a part of creating these children. But you walk in the door and she says, you need to take care of your children. Children, that's God. You know what these people are saying? These people, not my people. You know what these people are saying? They're saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now, God's talking about the temple. Again, the Babylonians come in. They destroy everything. God's talking about the temple, which was the center of the spiritual life for the Jewish people. Back when they were wandering in the wilderness under Moses, it was a portable tabernacle. 
And God told them, whenever you camp, you set that up front first and you put it in the middle of the camp and everybody camp around it because this is the priority. The presence of God is the priority. That portable tabernacle becomes a permanent temple when they get into the promised land. But still, the priority is the same. God's presence, God's leadership, your focus on God needs to be a priority. And that's really the analogy. It's not so much a building in 2019. Right? The analogy isn't, we should build bigger churches, we should build better churches. It's, it's not physically building things in 2019 because Jesus comes along, we become the temple of God. The challenge from Haggai to 2019 to, to us is, how much of a priority is your spiritual life to you? Like the, the, the core of who you are, spirit, the place of God in your life. In the Old Testament, the place was the temple. Now the place is you. So what is the priority level of what God is doing in your life right now? And think about it this way. If somebody followed you around for a week or two weeks or a month, they listened to all of your conversations, saw where you went, saw what you poured energy into, saw, saw what you poured resources into, saw what you, th- you understood what you thought about most during that week or two weeks or month, would they walk away thinking God's a priority to that person? Or Jesus is definitely at the center of that person's life. That's the challenge that Haggai is pressing on us in 2019. What's the priority in your life? How much of a priority is your spiritual life? God says, these people, these people say, the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We're not going to do that right now. I don't have time for that right now. I've got some other things going on in my life. I've got some other priorities in my life. I don't really have time for that. This isn't a good time for me. Now, we, we aren't told why it wasn't a good time necessarily. We aren't told how they would have explained that. What their excuses would have been for why they aren't making the presence of God a priority in their life. We're not given their list of excuses. They just said, it's not, it's not a good time. Here's what I think. When you don't want to do something, any excuse will do. You'll find an excuse. If something's not a priority to you, you'll find an excuse. If you don't want to work out, if you don't want to go to the gym, you will find a reason not to go. It's too hot. It's too cold. I'm too tired. I don't have enough time. It gets, gets dark early now. You know, just had time change. Today's time change. It's going to be dark early now. It's going to be too dark. Hey, if you don't want to do something, you find a reason not to do it. Students, if you don't want to work on the project that you do in two days, you can find some reason not to do it. Am I right? You can find something to distract you. You can find somebody to text. You can find somebody to engage with on social media. You can snap somebody. You can, you can find ways not to do anything you don't want to do. These people say the time is not right to rebuild my house, and they just 
make up excuses. Now, they had already started this project. We talked about starting projects. They had actually started the project 16 years earlier. They'd been in the land for 20 years, and this job still wasn't done. They started 16 years ago. Uh, The book of Ezra tells us about the start. Ezra writes, Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia, in the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, there's our political leader, Son of Sheltiel, Joshua, our spiritual leader, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity in Jerusalem, uh, to Jerusalem began the work. They, they started. Sixteen years ago, they started. They didn't finish. Again, starting is great. You got to start in order to finish, but starting's not finishing. Starting's just starting. And so many times we start things and then we begin to fizzle. We get bored. We get tired. We need something new. It gets hard. There are challenges. And so we, we just stop. If I had to pick one word to describe why the nation of Israel stopped the project that they had started... My one-word answer would be distractions. They just got distracted. There were just other things, just like we get distracted. We should be focused on this thing. We get distracted by a million other things, and, and unfortunately for us, we live in a time where there's no end to the distractions. The rabbit hole on the Internet, on YouTube on Twitter, on Instagram. There's no end to the distractions. This is what plagues the people of Jerusalem. Now, Ezra tells us one of the distractions. It's a distraction for them. It's a distraction for us. We get distracted when the calling that God's put on our life gets difficult. We get distracted when the calling gets difficult, when we face opposition, when it's hard. Not everybody, but it seems to be that some people give up when work becomes work. Have you noticed that? When work is actually work, they they want to do something else. When work is no longer fun and it's, it's no longer the start, it's no longer the beginning, we get distracted sometimes because it gets Hard. This is what Ezra says in chapter 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It was challenging. It wasn't fun anymore. It just became work. They had to show up every day, and it was hard, and they got frustrated. And they got angry, and they got tired, and they pointed fingers, and they lost sight of what God was trying to do in them. They lost sight of what God had called them to, and they quit. They stopped. Marriage 
can be like this. Marriage is a pretty good example. Because of social media, we have access to a lot of wedding pictures. We see wedding pictures and dresses and venues and wedding cakes and um, we get to see engagement pictures, right? He's going to ask her, and the, the photographer's hiding in the bushes at just the right angle, so when he takes a knee and the sun's right in the right spot, and we get the whole thing, and then we post it on social media, we, and they're beautiful. Like, all of the wedding, all of the venues and the cakes and the, and the dresses, everything's beautiful. But you learn fairly quickly in marriage that beautiful dresses and beautiful cakes and perfect venues and nice engagement pictures don't make marriage easy. Like that doesn't translate into 50 years of an easy relationship. <laughs> marriage is work, isn't it? I know you said yes, you just didn't want your spouse to, to hear it. So I, I can tell. It's to work sometimes. Sometimes it's the question... Are we going to stay in this or are we going to give up? Are we going to get distracted? Are we going to stay committed to the calling God's put on our life? Are we going to see our marriage and our lives as a temple of His presence that God is trying to build in us and we're not going to give up halfway through the project? We're not going to stop just because it got hard. And this applies to so many different areas of our lives. It certainly applies to the spiritual area. Of our lives. It applies to our churches. There's no perfect church. And 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 I maybe more so than ever before, I, I see people who just kind of hop from place to place because they're looking for that perfect church. And it takes about six months to realize any church you go to is not perfect. And then we have to ask ourselves, am I committed to becoming a temple of God's presence, knowing that it's not always going to be easy, it's not always going to be perfect. Sometimes we're distracted by difficulties and we don't want to stick with it. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now that's kind of the, the parallel movement here. These people say it's not the right time to rebuild God's house. Question, so is it the right time to build your house? Because you seem to have had time for that. I don't mean to put words in God's mouth, um, but if I were paraphrasing the intent of God, right? If I were paraphrasing this for uh, 2019, I think this is God's way of saying I see how it is. I see how it is. So you don't have time to do the things I've called you to, but you have time to take care of all of your stuff. I see how it is. So you don't have time to obey the calling that I've given you, but, wow, you got plenty of time to build yourself a house, a really nice house, a really comfortable house and pool in the backyard. and you, got, you have plenty of time for that. Let me get this straight. You have plenty of time for that. 
You don't have time for spiritual priorities in your life? Nothing wrong with a house or a jacuzzi or a pool. Invite me over sometime. That would be awesome. Nothing wrong with any of that. But what God is saying to the nation, what God's saying to us, when you compare the priorities of your life, is, is there room for what God's trying to do? Or are you focused on what you want to do? Because here's what I think is true. We have time to do exactly what we want to do. We, we have time to do exactly what we want to do. And we all get the same amount of time, right? 24 hours, 7 days a week. We, we all get the exact same amount of time, the task that we're given is how are we going to prioritize that time? What are we going to give ourselves most to? God says to the nation of Israel, you have no time for me, but you have plenty of time for yourself. I see how it is. I see where your heart is. I see the condition of your heart. I see what is first to you. We tend to get distracted by our own comforts and our own agendas. That's what God's saying. We get distracted by our own comforts, our own agendas. I'm going this way. This is what's most important to me. This is the priority of my life. This is what I'm going to give all of my time to. And God steps in and says, where do I fit into all of that? Why am I not considered and all of your priorities, and all of your time, and all of the things that you say are most important to you. Sixteen years have passed for the nation of Israel. And finally, a prophet steps up and says, what are you doing? Why are you drifting from God? Why is the life that God's calling you to not a priority for you? Why is everything else so much more important to you than the things of God? The truth is we live in a very comfortable part of the world. We, we live in a part of the world where we can afford our comforts. Where we can spend our resources on us. We're in the middle of a great economy right now. There are jobs for people. All of those are wonderful things until they become our focus, they become our distraction away from the things of God. And Haggai, 25 years ago, 2,500 years ago, said, look at how you're spending your life. Where does God fit into all of that? And it's not because God is trying to rob us it's not, it's not because God is trying to imprison us or take something away from us. God speaks these words because He's trying to help us. This is what He says next, verse 5. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is the life that you're living, where everything else is more important than God. You're going to get to the end of that life, and you're going to realize it really wasn't that fulfilling. 
It didn't satisfy the deep need of your soul. Because everything was more important to you than the eternal things. Than the really important things. And God says, here's what you're doing. You're eating, you're consuming. You got a lot of stuff and you're, you're never satisfied. You're drinking, you're never, you're never full. You consume and it never fills you up. Because you're running after stuff. You're running after everything but God. You're running after everything but a spiritual center to your life. You're running after everything but God's ability to build a temple of His presence in your life. And you're going to fast forward one day and realize it wasn't fulfilling. It didn't satisfy. See, ultimately... God doesn't want us to waste our life. That's what he's saying. That's the wake-up call that he's trying to give us through Haggai. I don't want you to waste your life. I I don't want you to get your priorities so mixed up that God is left out. And you come to the end of your life and realize you wasted so much of it on things that just don't matter. Things that aren't eternal. Things that are going to be gone. So maybe today... As we get started in this series, maybe today is just a a day to recalibrate. I mean, if Haggai was speaking to you, if God was speaking to you, and he posed this statement, you don't have time for this, but you sure do have a lot of time for that. How would he fill in those blanks for you? You don't have time for your spiritual life most days and weeks, but you have plenty of time for that. How would God phrase that in your life? Not to shame you, not even to criticize you. God would say that because He doesn't want us to waste our life, that we would live for the most important things. We would live for the eternal things. The things that will matter. Let's pray. God, we ask you to shine a light on our hearts, our minds. As we sing these these next songs that in our worship, we would be reminded of this. The spiritual projects, the spiritual life that we started And we've just kind of quit on. We've just plateaued maybe. We're not growing like we used to grow. We're not excited like we used to be excited. The start was great, but we've just kind of given out a little bit. May you use this day to help refocus us the priority of your presence in our lives, that we would live for the things that are eternal above all else. I pray it in Jesus' name.